Listener Production. Please leave your message after the tone. Why am I jealous of my ex? I am so stressed all the time. How do I get into a routine? Is TikTok making me anxious? I think I'm being manipulated. Someone told me you could live with half a brain. This is Do You Fucking Mind? Mindset Hacks for a Badass Life. Hosted by me, Alexis Fernandez. Hello, my beautiful beans, and welcome to the podcast topic of today. So this is a another neuroscience kind of dive into the topic of antidepressants. Now, this is going to be a two-part little series, okay? There, I'm going to be just a little disclaimer before I dive straight into it. No life update. I'll leave that for the next episode. But I'm going to be covering a whole bunch of treatments for depression. But keep in mind that in the scheme of pharmacology and neuroscience and how, you know, things interact with the brain on a cellular level, I am very much just scraping the surface. And when I talk about things as far as how drugs interact with the body when it comes to antidepressants in this case, I'm talking about general populations as well. Okay. So keep all of that in mind. The reason I've decided to break it up into two sections, into two episodes is because in the first episode, I'm going to be talking about the monoamine hypothesis of depression, which I'll get into in a second. And based on that hypothesis of depression, the drugs that are designed around that hypothesis and how they work to treat symptoms of depression. And then in the next episode, I'm going to be talking about the glutamatergic system and, you know, treating depression through that system instead of focusing on the monoamine hypothesis, okay? And I'm going to be delving deeper into those kinds of treatments. But I'm going to give you a little rough overview over the two things um, regardless. So let's break this down. The monoamine hypothesis, which is what I will be talking about today, is what a lot of antidepressants are based around. Your typical antidepressant that you'll be prescribed as the first line of treatment is likely to be based around the monoamine hypothesis and likely to treat depression in that way, okay? So we're talking like SSRIs, that kind of thing. It basically predicts that the underlying basis of depression is a reduced level or a depletion of serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine in the central nervous system. That's the monoamine hypothesis, okay? Now, this hypothesis has been supported by the action of a lot of antidepressants as these antidepressants target, basically their job is to raise the levels of those three neurotransmitters. And when those neurotransmitters uh, levels are elevated, it seems to be an effective way to treat depressive symptoms in a lot of patients but definitely not all of them, not even by a long mile, actually. But there's not enough convincing evidence to show that this reduction in these monoamines is the cause of depression in the first place. It might just be one of the things that occurs within depression but isn't causing it. And then there's other things going on in the brain that's still causing depression, but you're only targeting this one thing, okay? That's why for a lot of people, antidepressants don't do the job. And if it was as cut and dry as the monoamine hypothesis, you would imagine that there would be a higher success rate, possibly, okay? There's also many, many studies suggesting that it might not be what should be targeted and that in patients with depression, monoamine depletion, so depleting it even further, doesn't make their depressive symptoms worse 
And it also, depleting monoamines doesn't cause depression in healthy subjects either. So there's all these studies around, like really, if we were to tweak all these levels, is that the cause of depression or is there more going on, which then has a carry-on effect of these levels of monoamines being affected, okay? So there's a lot of gaps here in the research and insufficient evidence to say that it's the cause, given that only 30% of patients with adequate treatment have remission, full remission from depression. And this is 30%, okay? And when we talk about adequate treatment, that is when they can be treated for their depression with these drugs and are not part of the group of people that are treatment resistant. So that's even less people, okay? Now, this is what I'm going to be talking about in today's episode, those antidepressants that target the monoamine hypothesis of depression situation, okay? Then in part two, in the next episode next week, I'm going to go into the glutamatergic system in depression and the role that glutamate plays in neuromodulation. So there's many patients that show low or no response to these like OG antidepressants, the original antidepressants. And there's many limitations, like I said, to the monoamine hypothesis. And the glutamate and glutamatergic pathways could actually offer new options for strategies to treat depression. So in next week's section, I'm going to be covering novel ways of treating depression based on the glutamate and glutamatergic pathways. So glutamate is the major excitatory neurotransmitter within the brain. So we're talking about excitation and how to play around with those pathways as a form of treating depression in different areas of the brain, of course. Now, that episode is going to cover things like transcranial magnetic stimulation, ways of improving connectivity and neuroplasticity, ketamine therapies, transcutaneous direct current stimulation and other treatments as well. So that's going to be super fucking interesting next week. Okay, so in this episode, I'm going to be covering some of the commonly used antidepressants. And there's going to be many, many, many different kinds. And there's many different brand names for them in different countries. So I'm going to be giving a few brand name examples, but I'm mainly going to be talking about what it is that they target, because obviously different pharm pharmacy, big pharma companies call their medications different names and things like that. So I'm bunching them together by what they target. I'm going to be covering monoamine oxidase inhibitors, transcyclic antidepressants, SSRIs, and SNRIs. So let's start with monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Some of you may have been prescribed this in your time. Maybe, maybe not. This is the first antidepressant that was ever kind of brought to market. Um, and it was used, it be, was brought into the picture in the 1950s. Monoamine oxidase. So we're talking about monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So it's inhibiting monoamine oxidase, and that's what's causing the antidepressant effects. Now, monoamine oxidase is an enzyme which breaks down or metabolizes certain neurotransmitters. And these antidepressants, these particular ones, inhibit the action of that enzyme, okay? So when you inhibit the action of that enzyme, it's no longer metabolizing these particular neurotransmitters. Therefore, the levels of those neurotransmitters that are present become higher, bit more elevated and therefore those neurotransmitters can play their role within the brain without getting metabolized and not being able to do something. Okay. This is used to treat different kinds of depression and also neuropsychiatric disorders like social phobia, depression with atypical features and also panic disorder. So it's no longer the first line of treatment for depression because there's a lot of um, side effects and there's a lot of things that you've got to be careful when you're on this antidepressant. It's not the safest one anymore. So now 
you're more likely to, your first line of treatment will be something like an SSRI, but that is what we're talking about. So we've got two kinds. We've got, so the A focuses on noradrenaline, then 5-HT, which is another name for serotonin and dopamine. And that enzyme is present in the intestine, the peripheral nerve endings and the liver. And then the B version of that enzyme will preferentially metabolize dopamine and it's present in the brain, in your platelets and in your liver. Now with these drugs, the metabolism of the substance is reduced. So there's less metabolism of those things. Okay. So some are going to target more A, some will target more B, some do both. The side effects of monoamine oxidase inhibitors are anxiety, risk for a hypertensive crisis, Now, hypertensive crisis is a severe and rapid increase in blood pressure and it's an emergency and it could lead to heart attack or stroke. And it also, another side effect is agitation. Also, patients with epilepsy should not be on these particular antidepressants. Another thing that when you're on these antidepressants that you should avoid foods that are rich in something called tyramines, okay? Because if you have both of these things, tyramines and monoamine oxidase inhibitors, it then can cause other issues as well. So foods that are rich in tyramines are aged cheese, red wine, chocolate, avocado, fish, salami, bananas, and more, but they're the main ones. So all these foods should be avoided, which is such a fucking buzzkill. I can't even begin to imagine. Now, it also interacts quite intensely with other medications such as cold and flu meds, which can lead to hypertension. So you can't take cold and flu meds when you're on these. So the reason you can't have all of these fruits and veggies is because they're high in something called tyramine. And monoamine oxidase inhibitors also prevent the breakdown of tyramine. And if you eat foods that are rich in tyramine, plus preventing the breakdown of tyramine, then you can cause high serum levels of tyramine. And then that increases your blood pressure. And then in rare cases, it can trigger a cerebral hemorrhage, which is obviously something we want to avoid. If you are changing from antidepressant drugs, then you need to have a two-week minimum washout period. That means that when you get off the drug, you need to have two weeks of no drug in between, that's a washout period, before you try a different antidepressant drug. And that is because it should not be taken with other antidepressants. That's why you need the washout period. For example, an SSRI, which is targeting, you know, blocking the reuptake of serotonin. If you are having two drugs that are targeting serotonin and trying to over, overall increase the levels of serotonin, then you're going to have excessive levels of serotonin within the body. And this is where you could, it could cause something called serotonin syndrome, which I've covered in a brain fact in the past, which can be fatal. This is where you can have um, really high fevers, confusion, liver or kidney problems, seizures, really high blood pressure, all of that kind of thing. And the role of serotonin is to modulate, yes, attention behavior, but also thermoregulation. And when the body can't eliminate the serotonin, then it's going to cause obviously a lot of issues. Just like with anything, when the body can't eliminate something properly, and if the levels are too high, you're going to get an imbalance in something and it's going to be expressed in some way. Okay. So this is clearly not the safest antidepressant and that's why it's no longer the first line of treatment. But it is good to treat other things as well. So there are certain people that are going to respond a lot better to a monoamine oxidase inhibitor versus some other drug. Now, 
Now let's move on to tricyclic antidepressants, which is also called TCAs, okay? Now this came into play in 1959 and it gets its name tricyclic due to the chemical structure of, of the drug. There are three rings in that chemical structure, so tri, three, cyclic, like cycle. And its function is by inhibiting the reuptake of serotonin, norepinephrine, and this modulates attention, mood, and also pain, okay? It is the second line of treatment after SSRIs currently being used. Now, the first TCA was called imipramine, imipramine, I believe that's how it's pronounced. And it was actually originally made to be an antipsychotic, but it was then discovered to have pretty decent antidepressant properties, which then led to the, the new creation of like the next version of TCAs, like nortriptyline, doxepine, amitriptyline, and a bunch of others. Now these inhibit the reuptake in the presynaptic terminals, okay? So when you look at neurons and how they communicate, you've got the presynaptic terminal and then you've got the next neuron down, which is called the postsynaptic terminal. When a message is getting sent from neuron to neuron, it leaves the presynaptic terminal, the, the neurotransmitters. They're actually bunched up into these round things called vesicles. And then they're released out of the vesicle and released out of that cell. And then they land onto the other cell and they land on receptors. And then it performs an action on the following cell. The ones that don't land on the receptors of the postsynaptic cell get pumped back up into the original cell through these little transporter pumps, okay? So whatever, for example, serotonin is left over once they've been dumped, gets pumped up into the presynaptic cell where they came from, okay? And in this case, once they get pumped up into the cell, they either get repackaged or they get metabolized. This is where monoamine oxidase inhibitors, they metabolize them in there, or they get repackaged, okay? You're inhibiting the reuptake into these presynaptic terminals, okay? And this raised level of norepinephrine and serotonin contributes to the antidepressant effect, okay? But tricyclic antidepressants have a very diverse receptor affinity and diverse receptor affinity means that they can bind to not just the receptor that they're targeting, that the drug is intended to target, but they can bind to a whole bunch of other receptors as well. So they're quite... It's a quite a promiscuous drug in that sense in the, in, as far as pharmacology is concerned. So it means that they can target a whole bunch of other things, not just the target thing that we're trying to target, which means side effects, of course. That's, so when you look at side effects of drugs, it means that it's targeting more than the one thing you're trying to target or that you've had too much of that one thing you're trying to target. Okay, so here we've got dizziness, constipation, a whole bunch of other things. And they also inhibit cholinergic receptors, which can then lead to confusion, blurred vision, all these things as well. And then we've got TCA-induced histamine blockade, which can lead to sedation. So if you guys ever listen to my brain fact about histamines and antihistamines, first-generation antihistamines cross the blood-brain barrier and target the histamine production within the brain. So histamine in the brain actually keeps us alert. Outside of the body, it's doing other things, but in the brain, it's keeping you alert. Second-generation um, antihistamines cannot cross the blood-brain barrier, so they're targeting things that are going to prevent your allergy symptoms or are going to stop your allergy symptoms, but they're not getting in the brain. They're not targeting the, you know, the 
they're not blocking histamine in the brain and therefore it's not reducing your alertness and so you're not feeling drowsy. So when you hear about non-drowsy antihistamines, you're talking about a second generation antihistamine that does not cross the blood-brain barrier, okay? So in this case, the TCAs can sometimes have um, histamine blockade. They can block the histamine production and then, of course, it produces drowsiness. It can't be taken with SSRIs or monoamine oxidase inhibitors because it increases the risk of serotonin syndrome, okay? Then that brings me to the most common one that is used today as far as first-line treatment for depression, which is selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. I have covered this before, so I'm going to briefly go through it again. So examples of these, they're called SSRIs for short. An example of this is fluoxetine, paroxetine, um, cytolopram, escitalopram and cetraline. I probably butchered a few of those pronunciations. This is also used to treat OCD and generalized anxiety as well. So you can treat a couple of things with SSRIs. They are, as far as we know, as far as the main treatments for depression on the monoamine hypothesis of depression, they are probably the safest ones on the market. They've got the least amounts of side effects or at least the least dangerous side effects. Okay. This is basically where you're blocking the reuptake. So those pumps, you know how I mentioned you've got the presynaptic neuron, the postsynaptic neuron. Once the, the serotonin, especially in this case, this is targeting serotonin reuptake. So the serotonin's in these vesicles, they get released out of the vesicles, they exit the presynaptic cell. They have their action on the postsynaptic cell. Then we've got leftover serotonin here. Normally, that's going to get pumped up via these transporters. SSRIs block those transporters. So they can't get pumped up into the presynaptic cell to be repackaged again. So what happens, you've got all this serotonin that's sitting in that cleft in between the post and presynaptic cell, and then it's giving the serotonin a longer time frame, a longer window to continue to land on the postsynaptic cell and have its actions take place. Therefore, you've got more chance of more serotonin being absorbed and you're getting more effects of serotonin on the brain, such as changing your mood. Okay. So that's how they work. Now, why is it that they take weeks to work? Normally it takes around two weeks to work. Now we're not a hundred percent sure why that is, but what seems to be understood is that in patients with depression, you've got these in the postsynaptic cell, you've got these things called G proteins and they cluster up in the cell membrane called in these things called lipid rafts. Okay. You don't need to remember like the, 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 all of that, but basically you're getting things clumping up in parts where they should be clumped up. Okay. That's what, that's what we're, we're getting from that because they're clumped up there. It's interfering with the transmission of the signals of serotonin. So not only do we not have enough serotonin, but it's, it's struggling to get through because it's interfering with the, the transmission. You've got these things clumped up. They're not working properly. Okay. SSRIs can also build up in these rafts as well, which makes the G proteins come out of that raft and operate as they should and perform their proper function as they should. And that takes around two weeks to unblock those rafts and get the G proteins out of those rafts. That's another belief as to why it can take up to two weeks for someone to feel the effects of the antidepressant or sometimes for some people longer than two weeks. So that's one of the reasons behind it. Because really, if it wasn't for that, they should work a lot faster because we're getting the release of serotonin multiple, multiple times a day, an hour, a minute. Okay. Now 
Taking SSRIs does have side effects. It can have, it can lead to insomnia, irritability, nausea, vomiting, and of course, abruptly ceasing medication in one go without tapering off can, you know, like abruptly withdrawing from the drug can lead to a temporary deficiency in serotonin, which can lead to, of course, mood problems, uh, but sleep issues, headaches, agitation, and all of the above. Okay. Now, the last one I'm going to mention just to quickly summarize is SNRIs, which is serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. So very similarly to an SSRI, they are doing the same thing, but they're focusing on serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake. Okay. And unlike SRIs, they're actually quite effective to treat some kinds of pain like neuropathy. Um but they can also increase your blood pressure and your heart rate. So those are the main drugs that I wanted to cover in today's episode in following the monoamine hypothesis. So the monoamine hypothesis, like I said, is focusing on the idea that depression is caused by or heavily centered around those three neurotransmitters, okay? Um, serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. Next episode, I'm going to be talking about the more the glutamate pathways and glutamatergic systems because there's so much new research and a lot of promising things coming out of studies and not even studies now a lot of it's been like pushed through into more mainstream medication that people can use to use things that target the glutamatergic pathways things like ketamine which I've already spoken about is a really seems to be a really effective treatment for a lot of people who have depression, who have proven to be treatment resistant when it comes to targeting the monoamine side of things. Okay. As you can imagine, the brain is insanely complex. So it does take so long to be able to realize what it is that we're working with. How, Like it actually blows my mind that we already know the amount of things we know to understand how neurons can, you know, release things out of vesicles and how you can block certain things. I actually find that unbelievably fascinating to think that there's people in this world that have worked that shit out. It's pretty incredible. But to also be able to look at that and say that's not the whole picture, there's a lot more going on, and to look at the more the uh, how the brain, the excitability and excitation within the brain, also working with connecting brain regions and getting them communicating a lot better, neuroplasticity, things like that as a form of treating depression, to me sounds really exciting. And it sounds like there's so much more that can be explored. So if you are somebody that A, is interested, B, has suffered from depression or is currently suffering from depression or C, know someone who is, then I think the next episode will be quite interesting and eye-opening to see, you know, all these different treatments for depression because it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all. There's going to be people out there that will try one of the antidepressants that I've mentioned and it's been an absolute godsend. And then there's other people that are left extremely hopeless because they've tried these and it doesn't work. Some people try multiple different antidepressants and feel quite desperate and helpless because none of them are working. Also keep in mind that when we talk about the use of antidepressants, the best way when you are using an antidepressant is to couple the antidepressant with cognitive behavioral therapy to only target just the pharmacological side of things and not look at the behavioral side of things and the behavioral therapy side of things is only doing a portion of what could be done the most successful way of treating depression by far is when you couple cognitive behavioral therapy and 
pharmacology. Those things coupled together gives the antidepressant the best chance at succeeding and it also gives the patient the best chance at being able to get off them in the future, okay? So it is super important to couple both. Enough cannot be said about the benefits and the importance of cognitive behavioral therapy in isolation or in conjunction with a pharmacological intervention. Hopefully that was interesting and it gave you some some food for thought. Uh, If you are on any of these drugs, hopefully it gave you a bit of an insight into how it operates within your brain and what's going on within your brain. But please tune in for next week's episode, which is focusing on the other kinds of ways to treat depression. Um, I am going to brush over ketamine, but I have done an entire brain fact on ketamine as well. So if you do want to check that out, um, just sift through my last, it's in the last maybe It was end of last year, I believe, I did that episode. So good times. That is the neuroscience brain fact of the week. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, remember, be kind to yourself, be kind to your brain. Don't take shit from anyone. And especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke. Listener.